My name is Jacob, and I'm one of the ministers here at the Tri-Valley Church. Thank you for joining us this morning. We are going to be continuing on in a sermon series called David, the Heart of the King. And we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. If you have your Bible, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel is in the Old Testament, and it's right after, guess what? 1 Samuel. It's nice how that works out. And now I want to share with you a message about David and Mephibosheth. Everybody say Mephibosheth. 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 Okay. That's a, that's a name that some of you might hear and go, Mephibosheth. Yeah, I think I know that story. Isn't he, isn't he that guy? And some of you may go, Mephibosheth. That sounds like a Bible name. I don't have any friends named Mephibosheth. I, I don't know what we're talking about. Whether you've heard the story before, whether you've never heard the story before, you may have a different understanding of Mephibosheth than you've had even if it's from no understanding. Uh, we're going to look at it in a little bit of a different way this morning. I'm hoping that it, it'll encourage you. I'm hoping it'll be a blessing to you. Mephibosheth is a, is a fun name to say. Some people may have grown up in a church where they pronounce it differently. Is that anybody's experience? Some people say Mephibosheth, and I've heard some other pronunciations as well. But I say Mephibosheth, and so you're going to say Mephibosheth too. Everybody turn to the person next to you and say Mephibosheth. Now turn to the person on the other side of you and say, that's the right way to say it. Good. We're all in agreement then. It's good to be on the same page here. Well, no matter how you pronounce the name Mephibosheth, one thing is for certain, and that is our smartphones have no idea what you're talking about when you say Mephibosheth to them. There's been times as I've been preparing for this lesson where I'll make a note using the, the voice text feature. I'll say, ooh, read that article about Mephibosheth. And it never writes the name correctly. It does not know how to spell Mephibosheth. It always tries to, to suggest something else. Did you mean uh, maybe myth of a chef? Is that what you were trying to say? And, and I say, no, I was not trying to say that. Uh, it's an actual name. Sometimes it's like most favorite chef. Read an article about most favorite chef? And I, no, swing and a miss there. Uh, one time it came up as Matthew Bosher. And <laughs> I don't know who that guy is, but Method Potion, my Finnish hat, mess up a shift. <laughs> However many times I tried to explain to my phone, Mephibosheth, it did not understand at all. Some people are concerned about artificial intelligence rising up and the machines taking over our lives, but as long as this kind of stuff is happening, I'm not worried. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So, Mephibosheth. Kind of doesn't really matter how you say his name, because in Mephibosheth's time, nobody said his name. It was a name that nobody knew. He was somebody that was not on the radar. He was somebody that nobody cared about. He was nothing. Mephibosheth was the crippled son of Jonathan. And Jonathan was the son of King Saul. But when Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, uh, Mephibosheth was five years old, and his nurse scooped him up, and she fled. Because she knew that if a king has just been deposed, then the next king in line may come along and try to kill all of the descendants of that king, so that there's, uh, the kingship is not contested. So she was worried that someone might come and try to kill Mephibosheth. So she scooped him up, and she hurried out of there. And in her haste, she dropped him, and it crushed both of his legs. And he couldn't walk. So Mephibosheth 
was crippled, and he was a fugitive, and he was driven away from his home. He was living out in a desperate place. He lived, uh, scripture tells us that Mephibosheth uh, grew up and lived in a city called Lodabar, and Lodabar is a name that could be translated not farmable. Around here we pronounce it Modesto. <laughs> see, see how easy it is to take shots at somebody who, what are they going to do about it, right? What's Mephibosheth going to do? Mephibosheth was forgotten. Mephibosheth was nobody. He was nothing. David, on the other hand, at this point in the story of his life, he's finally becoming the somebody that he was destined to be. King Saul was dead. The Philistine enemies were subdued for the time being. The Ark of the Covenant had been brought back to Jerusalem. It seemed that God truly was building the house that he told David he would build for him. Things are going great. And then David, as he sits on top of the world, he remembers something. He remembers a covenant, a promise that he made to his good friend Jonathan way back. You guys remember Jonathan? We talked about him a couple weeks ago. He said, I will always show kindness to the house of Saul. Jonathan said, promise me you'll do this. And David made this covenant with Jonathan. So everything's going fine. And he says, I want to make good on that promise. And so he asks the people around him, are there any descendants of Saul left? Is there anybody I can show kindness to? And they think about it and they go, uh, no, not really. I, don't, I can't think of anybody. Oh, there's that one guy. That, what's his name? That guy out in Lodabar. He's still around. You can maybe go find him. They don't use his name in Scripture during this exchange. His name is not mentioned. But David says, he's perfect. Bring him to me. And this is where Mephibosheth comes back on the stage. And I want you to listen now from, first, or from 2 Samuel chapter 9, this beautiful story of love, generosity, and restoration. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he said. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. You will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant, that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and he said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him, bring him in the crops, so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. That's good news for Mephibosheth, right? That's quite a turn in his life. Just like that, Mephibosheth goes from nobody to somebody. He goes from rejected to restored, from lost to found. He is carried to the table of the king. I want to ask at this point, does that sound familiar to any of us? Lost and then found, rejected, restored? This sounds like a story we know. I think we resonate with this story here in 2 Samuel chapter 9 because it's so much like our story of being found in Christ. It's the story of a broken person who is sought out by the king and shown mercy. It's the story of someone who can't hide from their shame or do anything to change their situation. And yet... 
is called by name, loved by the king, and given a seat at the table, a place in the family, an assurance of well-being for the rest of his life. It's a good story. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us, for seeking us and finding us and calling us by name and inviting us to your table. It is so good to be your children. We thank you for the salvation we have in Christ, for this reminder this morning, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. And we can stop there. This could be the end of the message. Um, I think we did everything that we, we needed to do. We did this, the cell phone shtick. We had a funny joke about how dirty Modesto is. We heard the gospel. We were reminded of our salvation. Um, but it's early, and there's still some time left, so let's, let's keep looking. Let's see what else the story of David and Mephibosheth tells us. Because there's a little bit more. You have to read on to get to it. You're not going to find it in chapter 9. But uh, let's fast forward a little bit. You get chapter 10. David defeats the Ammonites like he does. Chapter 11 is David and Bathsheba. We'll talk about that more next week. Um, Amnon and Tamar. And then you get to Absalom. David has a son called Absalom. And he's got a bad relationship with Absalom. And Absalom kind of stages this coup against David. He challenges him for the kingdom. He basically takes over Jerusalem for a time, and David is now on the run. He's got to flee. He's like, things are going crazy. I just got to get out of here. So he's in a hurry to get out of the city. And look in chapter 16. We'll look in uh, 2 Samuel 16. David is on his way out, and Ziba, remember the servant that he told to, to care for Mephibosheth and his family, Ziba comes to David, and he's got like 200 donkeys. He's like, here's a bunch of donkeys for you and your men. David's like, that's nice. I could use those at a time like this. He's like, I also have some wine for you. I got some food for your men. David is like, this is fantastic. But Ziba is in charge of Mephibosheth, so David notices that Mephibosheth is not present. So naturally, he asks him, where is your master's grandson? Where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to him, well, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the Israelites will restore me uh, to me, my grandfather's kingdom. And then the king said to Ziba, hmm, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And uh, Ziba says, I humbly bow. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord the king. Of course he's happy with that decision. He just got all of Mephibosheth's inheritance. There's kind of a turn here in the story. Mephibosheth was carried to the table by David, promised well-being, given this inheritance. But now... He sees an opportunity, and he's going to stay in Jerusalem, and he's going to try to be loyal to Absalom. This is, this is a little bit strange. Ziba tells the story that way, at least. He kind of throws Mephibosheth right under the bus, and he's in the right place at the right time. David says, all right, all that land, all that stuff, boom, you have it, and I'm out of here. And he leaves. Okay? Well, we'll fast forward a little bit. The coup that Absalom leads against David doesn't last. And David returns back to Jerusalem after Absalom dies. And as David is now on his way back into Jerusalem, look who he runs into. It's his old friend, 
Mephibosheth. And we are going to pick up the story here in 2 Samuel chapter 19. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? And he said, My lord the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and I will ride on it so that I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And he slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All of my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? And the king said to him, Why say more? I order that you and Ziba divide the land. And that is the story of David and Mephibosheth. It's a little different than where the story ends in chapter 9. It becomes a little bit more complex. It's not quite the happily ever after that we heard in chapter 9. It seems like what we heard in chapter 9 was the Caleb version of the story, and this broader view that we get is a little bit more complex. We get Mephibosheth going to David. He doesn't run. He doesn't hide. He goes to the king, and he pleads his case. And David essentially says to him, you know what? I don't really care. Whatever. Just do what you want. Here, you guys figure it out. You divide the land however you want to. I'm tired. I'm done. I don't have time for this. I'm going home. And that's not a very satisfying conclusion. That's not a very satisfying version of David. This story leaves us with a lot of unanswered questions. Like, was Ziba lying? when he said that Mephibosheth was going to now be loyal to Absalom? Or is Mephibosheth lying when he pleads this case and says, this is what I was actually going to do? Which, Which of these men are we supposed to trust? David doesn't take time to worry about that. He says, you know what, you guys figure it out. So Ziba gets half the inheritance, Mephibosheth gets half the inheritance, and we're left going, one of these guys is a liar. One of these guys is completely deceitful and yet is walking away with a pretty big prize. That doesn't sound like justice. That's not how things should have worked out. And what happened to David's leadership and generosity and this concern that he showed for Mephibosheth back in chapter 9? Where did that go? Chapter 9 is starting to sound a lot more idealistic. And chapter 19 is starting to sound more like like real life. Can anybody relate to that? Anybody else's life? Complex? Complicated? Is your real life a place where people who promise you things don't always follow through? Real life is a place where greedy people take things just because they can? Where people who are supposed to look out for you let you down? Where people's actions don't light up with their words and you don't really know if you're getting the whole story? Some days in life, I don't even want to know the whole story. I don't know if you've been in a situation before where you hear something or you find out something about someone and you wish you hadn't heard it. You're like, oh, man, I don't want to know that. I don't want to be responsible for that information. I don't want to have to carry this confidence. That's a heavy weight. You wish you could just pretend like it didn't happen. Sometimes we do that. We avoid 
the complexities of life or the awkward conversations or the hard discussions that need to be had because we love chapter 9. We like to hang out in chapter 9. We want the story to stop with chapter 9. And that's understandable because chapter 9 is great. Chapter 9 is where everything works out and everything gets wrapped up with a nice little bow on it. Chapter 9 is the wedding reception, but chapter 19 is the marriage counseling. Chapter 9 is the last night of camp. Chapter 19 is going back to school in the fall. Chapter 9 is like first day of your brand new job. Chapter 19 is like the second day of your brand new job. <laughs> hmm. We hope in chapter 9, but we, we have to live in chapter 19. And the messy realities of life can wear you out like it did to David. It can make you tired and uncaring. It's easy to love Mephibosheth when you're on top of the world and everything's going great. But when you start experiencing the real-life consequences of your bad choices, that's when you find out who you really are. And at this point, some of you are wishing, you should have just stopped at the end of chapter 9. <laughs> You're bumming us out here, Jacob. It's a pretty glass-half-empty attitude, and I acknowledge that. I think I'm a pretty glass-half-empty kind of person. Uh, in general, that's kind of how I'm wired. So it's natural to ask these questions. Why couldn't we just stop when things were great? Why couldn't we just have a chapter 9 David? Why can't we do a study in the life of David and just focus on the good stuff? That's what the kids in the nursery get to do. Why can't we just have the felt board David? Why can't we just have the greatest hits David? I happen to like the David who's an unassuming shepherd boy. I like David when he courageously slays Goliath. I like the David who dances in front of the ark and who spares the life of Saul. Why can't we just stop with that David? I wish we could. But we know the whole story. And the reason we can't stop with chapter 9 is because that's not the whole story. That's not the truth. And like our experiences in life, the truth is much harder to deal with and face. And so a lot of the times we just don't. We avoid the whole story says that David bringing Mephibosheth into his house may have just been a political move. It may have just been a strategy, keeping your enemies closer kind of thing. The whole story says that David was pretty terrible. We're going to find that out in the next two weeks. as We look at those stories, David and Bathsheba, David and Absalom. He's got his flaws, for sure. The whole story says our churches are shrinking, there's fewer people here than used to be, not just in this church, but in churches. And maybe there's more that we can do about it than we want to admit. Maybe there's more effort than we can put in than we feel like we have the energy to put in. The whole story for me says that I often trust my own abilities as a minister more than I trust in prayer or in the work of God's Holy Spirit at work in my life and in this church. And while I've brought you guys down to this low, low valley here, I'll share a couple other things that typically don't want to get out. Some ugly truths from my whole story. I was a student at uh, Pepperdine University on September 11th, 2001, the day the airplanes hit the World Trade Center towers. 
I was going from my dorm down to where I worked, and I stopped in the student center for a cup of coffee, and I watched on live television as the second plane hit the second tower. That was a crazy day. And I was upset that day, as a lot of people were upset. But my whole story, if I tell you something that I don't normally tell people, you would find out that I was upset. But the main reason I was upset that day is not because of the loss of life, the people who were hurt, or the uncertainty about the future of our country. I was upset because I had concert tickets that night. I had tickets to go see a concert at the House of Blues in Hollywood. And they shut down the entire city that day. And I was mostly upset about the fact that they canceled my concert. Pretty shameful, but it's true. But I was 20 years old. And that's the kind of stuff you do when you're Jacob and you're 20. <laughs> I'm better now, I hope. I hope I'm more mature. I hope I'm a less selfish individual. Well, let's see. I'll give you a more recent story out of, uh, out of my whole story. My wife and I, as you know, we had our fourth child just, what, eight weeks ago? And it was great. We, we celebrated. You guys brought us meals, and it was fantastic. And uh, we, we were thanking God because this is something that we prayed for. And uh, it was a joyful time. And Lisa's an amazing woman. She, she nurses the baby, and she teaches Sunday morning class, and uh, cares for the other kids. And I should be nothing but grateful. I should be nothing but appreciative. And this is, this is the stage that our family's in. We're all pulling together to try to make things happen. But if I'm honest, if you guys know the whole story, then I would have to tell you that the first few weeks that we had the baby home from the hospital, the number one thought that went through my head, more than any other thought, was, how much longer is it going to be before I get to have sex again? <laughs> That's true. That's me being honest. And your nervous laughter shows me that you're not used to hearing that sort of thing <laughs> from, from me, from the pulpit. And I get it. You didn't come here to hear that kind of stuff this morning. You don't want to know those kinds of things. I don't want to confess those kinds of things. I don't want those things to actually be True, but that's chapter 19 stuff. That's real life. But a majority of the time, I only want to see and project and deal with chapter 9 stuff, the good stuff. And it turns out, as we study the life of David, I see that I want so badly to be like David the Bible character, that I'm blind to the truth, that I'm just like David the person. I want to honor God. I want to be righteous, but at the same time, I also want to be king. I want to have everything. I want to be in charge. These things are two truths that are part of the whole story, and most days I do a terrible job reconciling the two of those things. What a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body that is subject to death? Maybe you know how the rest of that goes. Thanks be to God who delivers me through whom? Say it louder like you mean it. Delivers me through whom? <laughs> through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's the uptick. Jesus Christ has to be the hero of this story. Amen. It turns out Jesus Christ is not afraid of my whole story. 
He is not afraid of the whole story. Jesus was not ashamed of his own humanness, and he's not ashamed of our humanness. doesn't mean that my selfishness is okay, but Jesus is not going to avoid it. He's not going to shy away from it. He's not going to avoid a conversation with me about it. Jesus is not ashamed of it. Jesus was not ashamed of his own humanness. In Jesus Christ, God became flesh. And this is such an important thing to understand. I was reading Eugene Peterson, and he talks about the connection between the humanity of David and the humanity of Jesus. If we are uncomfortable with the humanity of Jesus, we're going to be uncomfortable with the humanity of David. We're going to be uncomfortable with our own humanity. We're going to become avoiders. We're not going to speak the truth. We're not going to uh, acknowledge chapter 19 when we see it in our lives and in the lives of others. And he puts it in a lot better terms than I just did, so let's let him have a word here. He says there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that God can't and doesn't use to work his salvation and holiness into our lives. If we're going to get the most out of the Jesus story, we'll first want to soak our imaginations in the David story. The entire meaning of the incarnation is that God enters our human condition, embraces it, and comes to where we are to save us. And so Jesus has to be the hero of this story. Not Jacob, not Mephibosheth, not Ziba, and not even David. And that's because Jesus is not the selfish child that Jacob is. Jesus does not have ambiguous loyalties like Mephibosheth. Jesus does not use our relationship with him to his own advantage like Ziba did. And Jesus does not go back on his promises and he doesn't run out of energy the way that David did. Jesus not only reconciles us with God the Father, but he also reconciles tension between divinity and humanity, between heaven and earth, between the ideal and the actual, between chapter 9 and chapter 19. Jesus himself experienced chapter 19, but he still offers us chapter 9, a beautiful story of love, generosity, and restoration. And so... While we live in chapter 19, we hope in chapter 9. And both parts of the story are true. Both parts of the story are a part of the whole story. And we need to keep these two stories in tension. We need to have glass half empty people in our church, but we also need glass half full people. We need summer Christians and we need winter Christians. We need K-Love and we need K-Rock. And some young people would say we need K-pop, but I don't know if I'm on board with that yet. Chapter 19, Christians keep it real. Chapter 9, Christians keep the vision. And so while this broad view of the story of David and Mephibosheth reveals the often avoided truth that life is complex and messy and imperfect, chapter 9 points us back to a simple old truth, and that is, God loves us so much. He loves us so much that he was willing to send his one and only son so that any of us complex, messy, and imperfect human beings who believe in him will not be lost, but will have everlasting life. Chapter 9 points us to the truth that like Mephibosheth, we have been carried to the table. That's the good news this morning.